Good morning. It's good to see everyone. I hope that you all are, are doing well. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10 this morning. And Lord willing, we are going to finish Ezra today. And next week we will begin in Nehemiah. It's been a, a good journey so far in Ezra, and I hope that as we finish this morning that you'll have some time to reflect upon Ezra and answer that last question uh, accordingly uh, together. Last week we started chapter 10, and we saw some pretty amazing things take place in Ezra chapter 10. And honestly, these things that we saw in Ezra chapter 10 are a pretty rare occurrence. They're rare in the Bible, and they're rare in our own Christian experience. You don't see much public, godly sorrow for sin anymore, much less any form of shame or sorrow for the wickedness that humanity is capable of. And yet Ezra and several others joining him display godly sorrow for their sin and for the sin of their people. And then the people join in that godly sorrow on that rainy day on December 19th, 458 B.C., and they experience the guilt of their sin. You don't see much godly sorrow anymore. You don't see much godly confession anymore. To agree with our Lord the undeniable guilt of our sin before Him. In fact, I've heard it said that there's no other theological doctrine with more objective evidence than the doctrine of sin and the depravity of man. I think I actually learned that from you, Kenny, from somewhere you learned it from, somewhere else. Which means we have much to confess. We may individually confess our sins, but nowadays I can imagine the necessity to confess your sins is so old-fashioned that many who call themselves Christians don't practice the confession of sin at all and unfortunately are even taught by their leaders and their pastors not to do anything that will make them feel bad about themselves. Because God loves you. And in His love, He does not want you to feel bad. Just a side note, confessing one's sin, if you do not know, is not fun. It's not flattering. It does not feel good to your guiltiness before the Lord or before anyone else. It's not a pretty picture. But what is also very true, very true, is that our God, our Lord, our Heavenly Father is good. And that He is merciful. And He is forgiving. And He forgives us of our sin because the Son, Jesus Christ, Christ and His work on the cross. And therefore, when we confess our sin, God is glorified. 
And when God is glorified, we receive the great joy of knowing and experiencing the loving and gracious forgiveness of our God, our Heavenly Father, which far outweighs any false sense of safety, of ignoring my sin and coddling my failure so that I can achieve a very shallow, fleeting feeling of self-worth. Meaningful self-worth is only found clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Bitterness of our tears of confession are always replaced by the sweetness of our Savior. And amen to those who know what I'm talking about. And lastly, you don't see much godly repentance anymore. Just like in confession, you can make a pretty strong argument that repentance is one of the least words in many churches today. It's considered intolerable and unloving and even now blasphemous to mention sin at all. Not to mention to do so doesn't fill seats. So sin these days is no longer anthropological, which means it's no longer a problem that man has, but sin is only to be defined as sociological, meaning it's society's problem, it's someone else's problem, i.e., therefore, it's society's problem to deal with. That's not a biblical case of the doctrine of sin. Sin is humanity's issue. And because we live in society, we mess it up. But repentance, according to the Bible, and evidence throughout Christian experience, is vital to the Christian faith. And I would say is, is almost just as vital as faith itself. Jesus said in Luke 13 twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so here in Ezra 9 and 10, when, when, when Israel had sinned, this sin of, of intermarrying came to the forefront by the preaching of the word of God, Ezra prayed and he led the people in sorrow and in confession and then in repentance because that is the, the pattern by which the Bible brings us to come before the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. He leads them in repentance to put away these wives and their children according to the scriptures, verse 3. As Shechaniah put it, and Ezra told them to separate themselves from the people of the land and from their foreign wives, verse 11. Most of all, or excuse me, most all agreed to these terms that were set before them. Few of them didn't. And it took three months for them to sort through each family and determine who was guilty and what specifically needed to be done. Verses 16 and 17 lay out the plan and how it was executed. But what is odd this morning is when we look at the end of Ezra the very end, not just end of chapter 10, but the end of Ezra is how it ends, how it concludes. It doesn't end with the, the great fruit that comes from repentance. 
It doesn't end in jubilation and celebration of the forgiveness of God. Nor does it, thankfully, end in judgment. But it ends with another and another list. I know how y'all love lists. That's why I picked this, right? Because we love to eat, go with these lists. But this list, unlike the others, isn't exactly the kind of list that you want to be found on. Isn't the kind of list that you want to be found on. This, this list isn't filled with all the heroes and who were brave and risked it all to leave the comforts of Babylon and to travel back to the land where their ancestors were before them, to, to blaze a new trail for, for Israel back to Jerusalem. The Bible is full of lists, as we know. But this isn't the kind of list that anyone would want to be on, including those who found themselves on that list. When you're recorded in the Bible on a list of those being unfaithful, generally that is not a good thing. We think of guys like Judas and others. We don't want to be like him. And Ezra ends... Ezra, with the record of the families and the names of all the people who were engaged in this particular sin. Let's look at Ezra chapter 10, starting in verse 18. I'm not going to read through the whole thing because there is well over 100 names there, and you all have heard me suffer enough in reading a bunch of names, but I think you'll get the gist in the verses that we do read. Starting in verse 18. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Masiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gadiah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilts. Look at verse 23. Of the sons of Levites, six names. Of the sinner, singer, excuse me, one name. Of the gatekeeper, three more names. And of the son and of Israel, 82 more names, or 83 more names. Verse 44. All of these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even bore children. This is the word of the Lord, and may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see His holy, inspired, and inerrant word for His glory and our joy. Amen. Some of you may be wondering how I'm going to have any kind of sermon from that much text. <laughs> but hear me out. I think you get the gist of what's happening here. A list, 17 priests, 16 Levites, one singer, three gatekeepers, 84, 83 uh, Israelites, the lay people were all on this list. If you're doing the math, that's about 110, 111 cases that ought to be dealt with. 
But this is how Ezra ends. He ends abruptly with a list of sinners. And in the very last verse, a sad reality that in some cases produced even children. Now children were not the problem. Having children was not the sin. That wasn't the the problem. Children themselves are not inherently sin. Children are a blessing from the Lord. But unfortunately, these children became signs of the sins, of the unfaithfulness of the men who unequally yoked themselves to foreign women. Why was this a sin again? The Lord had prohibited them to marry foreigners because, not racism, but because these women would lead them away from God, would lead them into the abominations that they were committing, that the text laid out for us in chapter 9. It was a matter of holiness in a relationship to the Lord that they were forsaking to marry these women and forsaking the Lord's promises. The children were not the problem. Marriage itself was not the problem. And there have been some questions of, my, of, the, of the language as I was reading this and studying this in, this in chapter 10. Some of the questions that come up is, is the word married in marriage the right interpretation? Is it the right use of the, of the Hebrew word there in chapter 10? Did they really get married because of the the literal translation of the Hebrew word here means to caused to dwell or in the same house or gave a home. So certainly there's a there's an implied of the, the possibility of marriage, but also there's an implication that some of these relationships were of cohabitating together and not even married or even what we would call common law marriages these days. So whatever the situation had the, could be, it could be one of the it could be one of the three. Think about how tangled up this situation is. Some married, some cohabitating, some common law marriage, either way the sin at hand is holiness. But marriage isn't the problem. Marriage itself is good and is a gift given by God to, and we have to say it these days like this, by, for a biological man and for a biological woman to unite together to display the gospel. It's a union of Christ and his church for them to enjoy the benefits of God's glory in marriage. In Christian marriages, holiness is what's to be displayed. It's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 we see a priority of mutual faith of a man and of a woman in order to ensure godliness is demonstrated in the home and in the family. Christian men who are single should marry Christian women so that they would be in union Spiritually, hear that, young men? They know that. I don't have to say that. They know that. 
They would be in union together spiritually and together in the church, doctrinally and theologically, praying together in the home and raising children together in the ammunition of the Lord. This is one way we understand what it means to be equally yoked in confession and in doctrine and in love. Marriage relationships are profoundly important in the life of the church for human flourishing. And it must be protected starting in each and every one of our own homes. But marriage in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10 isn't the problem. The problem here in Ezra 9 and 10, and every name on this list is testifying to it, and that is the problem of sin. It's a major theme throughout the entire Bible since Genesis chapter 3. That man by nature is fallen. And in that fallenness we are sinners. By choice we are sinners. Not just by nature, but by choice. We are sinners. We are inclined to evil, to gratify the flesh, and therefore, as our statement of faith says, under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse before a holy God. This list that no one wants to be on, a list that I don't want to be on, a list that I know that you don't want to be on, but there's still names on it. And this list teaches us about sin. It reminds us of our sinful natures. And how as Christians, if you are a Christian, you should be thinking about your sin and your sin nature and putting it underneath the understanding of the Word of God. Let the Scriptures teach you about your understanding of your sinfulness. Let it define for you your sin and your sin natures. And second, this list, I think, teaches us, as well as the whole book of Ezra is teaching us, what is yours and what is mine and what was Israel's greatest threat. Let's look first at our view of sin. Remembering our nature of sin. So we have this list, 110 names or so, that includes some of the most important groups among the people, the priests, the, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers. And it shows us how pervasive this sin had become, especially the acceptance of that sin had become. However, those found guilty only really made up about half of a percent of the total male population of Israel. It's a long list. No one wants to be on the list. It's a small percentage of the, of the whole group. 
It's a small number. A hundred out of maybe 30,000 is really not that much. Is that really, should we really be that focused on this then? Should this really be how Ezra ends his, his book? Should it really be that significant and that important? Some might even say, what's the big deal? Why, why make such a big deal over such a small percentage? Why all the weeping? Why all the mourning? Why did you tear your hair out, Ezra? Man, that had to hurt. Why, why do we all need to gather here in the rain for this? Why not just deal with it individually and just move on? You see, these are the same kind of arguments that are made today. The same kind of arguments that I can in my own heart to justify my own sin. It's not that big of a deal. I don't always think that way. I don't always speak that way. I don't always treat everyone like that. I don't always get that angry. I don't always lust after this or that or whatever it may be. That's their own personal life decision. How does that affect me? But what's interesting and what should shock us in our reasoning is that is not how the Bible reasons sin. That's not the kind of arguments that the Bible shows us. In the Old Testament, there's the sin of Achan. In Joshua, he sinned. Achan sinned. He blatantly disobeyed the Lord's word, and because of this one man's sin, consequences fell upon a whole nation. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, there's a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who desired to look good before the church. And the way to do that was to look generous. To look like you were, you were generous. But to them, they wanted to look generous without actually being generous. And so they lied about what they offered. And yes, they the brunt of the consequences of their sin. But so did everyone else. Because fear came upon the whole church. These and many others are all reminders of how the sin of a few can have a serious consequence in the life of the community. Have you ever heard the phrase, no man is an island. Or, or maybe the, the, the lone ranger effect where we believe that we can, we can do everything on our own and whatever we do will only affect us alone. Well, that is just not true. No man or woman is an island. And in the church, our sin could affect others. It can bring a standstill and and de de uh, debilitate the spiritual power and the influence of others. It has great effects of others. Think of about all the ways your sin, your anger, your pride, etc., has ever affected any other relationship that you have. 
how our pride can affect the relationships with our spouses, how our children can affect our anger, affect the relationships with our children, or lying with friends, or whatever it may be. We saw this week in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin can leaven the whole group. Our individual sin can and does affect the whole body. Stub your big toe and see how well everything works right after that. And we are the body of Christ. And when one of us and one part is, part is hurting, when one part is, is failing, we are all affected in one way or another. Whether we know it or whether we don't know it, we all are affected. Another thing on this list is that everyone on this list is guilty and they're named publicly. You couldn't be in a more public record than the Bible. Best-selling book of all time. <laughs> and yet this is another indication that discretion is not always the better part of valor. Pretending that nothing is wrong is not helpful. We remember what the Word tells us. It's that when we are, when we are weak, is where he is strong. We are not on an island. Our sin is not isolated to just ourselves. And I believe that this list is a stern reminder to us not only our sin and consequences on the body of Christ and on ourselves, but it should teach us about repentance. And in repentance, to hate our sin. To hate our sin. This is one of the most important parts of repentance. To learn to hate our sin. Would you not, do you not believe that having your name on such a list would not be a reminder to you of the consequences of your sin? The embarrassment of it, the shame, the guilt, and even the loss. If you are a Christian, then learn in this life that as a sinner to hate your sin. And with that hatred, we would put to death and that we would strive for it not to creep back into our hearts. To be holy is to kill sin. And to kill sin, you must first hate it. The Puritans wrote much about sin, repentance, the holiness of God, and as a Christian, the pursuit of that holiness. This was a priority of the Puritans. And one of the Puritan writers on particularly this topic, Thomas Watson, in his short book of the Doctrine of Repentance, said hating sin, again, is, the, is part of the process of, of repentance. Because it's in that shame and, and guilt and embarrassment we will learn to hate that drags us there. That puts us there. And that it offends the Lord. This is what Thomas Watson said. He said, a true 
penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathe which makes his stomach sick, I mean, all got little things that has made you sick over the years, and you don't touch it anymore. Think of that. This is this, right? You you loathe the stuff that makes you sick. Much more will he loathe that makes his conscience sick. It is more to loathe sin than to leave it. One may leave his sin for fear, but the nauseating and loathing of sin argues a distation of it. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. When the soul sees an issue of blood running, he cries out, Lord, when shall I be free from this body of death? When shall I put off these filthy garments of sin and have the fair mitre of glory set upon my head? Let all my self-love be turned into self-loathing. What are we taught in our culture today? Love yourself! Adore yourself! You're right just the way that you are! We are never more precious in God's eyes than when we are lepers in our own. He goes on to say, How far are they from repentance who, instead of hating sin, love it? To the godly, sin is a thorn in the eye. To the wicked, it is as a crown on the head. The world we live in today, the way the world has always been, is that it wants to feed our desires. It wants to disciple us to love our sin. And, and, and to make it as if it's not sin. It wants you to love it. It wants you to wear that wickedness as a crown. But as Watson told us, I think wisely, to the godly, sin makes us sick. It's a thorn in the eye. This list in Ezra chapter 10 is another reminder about sin. It's a reminder of our own sin and our need for sound repentance. Remember that sound repentance begins and not how we feel, but it begins by understanding and knowing the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And that because He is holy, He sent His Son in order for us to be forgiven. It begins in the ends in a hatred for our sin. We do not hate that which we love. And we will certainly not kill that which we love. It teaches us 
about our view of sin. But second and lastly, it teaches us of our greatest threat. I want us to understand truly what is ours, what is your greatest threat. Where does it come from? What is its source? Well, in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, Ezra recorded for us the historical count, the names and numbers of the first group of returning exiles from Babylon, led by Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua. And when they got back to the land, what was the priority of the leaders, of the prophets, and of the priests? to set up the altar, to rebuild the temple, and to reestablish worship in Jerusalem. But it wasn't as easy as just saying it. They had to do it. And they did. But in doing so, they faced decades of resistance, institutional red tape and setbacks from governors and other officials, And the Jews languished under the oppression and failed for decades to finish the temple. And that is until in Ezra chapter 5, the Lord was kind and merciful and sent his word by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, which they lit a proverbial fire underneath Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people to get in gear to stop fearing man and to be obedient to the Lord's command to reestablish the right worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. Opposition continued, but eventually King Darius stepped in and the, and the decrees that he gave that they were to be left alone, the temple should be finished, those once enemies would provide the materials for the temple, and the kingdom's treasury would pay for the whole thing. Is God not good? The temple was finished and the sacrifices began again. The restoration of the Passover for decades. Now Passover's back. In Ezra chapters 1 through 6, we would seem to believe that Israel's greatest threat was external. Their greatest threat came from outside of them. But then we get to Ezra 7 and 10, when Ezra comes on the scene, leading this second second group back into the land. But this time, where does their opposition come from? It doesn't come from other people. But rather, what we see here is the greatest threat to Israel comes from their own and from their own hearts. I believe that this is one of the biggest lessons being shown to us from the book of Ezra. If there is a broken vase in the middle of a room and four children standing around the room staring at the broken vase and you walk in and you say, or you ask, who did it? We all know what the answer is. I didn't do it. They did it. Or he did it or she did it. We all know what each of the answers would be. Children blame one another. They don't take responsibility. And yet it isn't just what children do. You see, if we could be honest with ourselves, then we would have to see this lesson from Ezra in our own life, that the greatest threat to us is not what is external, but what is internal. 
It's not circumstances or other people that is our greatest threat. We can do our best against external opposition and oppression, marginalization, injustice, persecution, and suffering that we may face in this life. And in any one of those circumstances, the Bible teaches us two very, really important points. That number one, we live in a fallen world where we will face external opposition and resistance. That's a guarantee. And number two, the very real reality that our God is sovereign over all things, including the opposition and resistance that we may face. In times that we live now, where there's so much uncertainty, we know that God is sovereign and not any bit of hardship that comes our way that he will not, that he will not use. Nothing is wasted. No ounce of pain, no ounce of suffering, no ounce of marginalization is wasted with our God. Even if we are killed for the sake of the gospel, don't we know that God will overcome all and that we will be raised again? Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So our greatest challenges are not those that come from the outside or what is external. The greatest challenge we face is the challenge within us, the challenge to be faithful to the Lord. Isn't that the lesson that we all must learn? That our greatest enemy has always been ourselves and not other people. The media wants you to believe that your greatest enemy is Donald Trump. The rest of the world wants you to believe that your greatest enemy is Joe Biden. How stupid are both of those? We think deeper so that we can feel deeply. And we're thinking deeply here because our greatest enemy is ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. There is no one who has lied to you more than you. And I don't care what your situation is. That's just the truth. I have to hear that. I need to know these things. Because I want to blame others too. So much easier. Boy, it feels so much better, doesn't it? That I can take a straw man and build him up and punch him. I know how to punch a punching bag now. I can do that. But we see in Ezra that the Lord had overcome every one of their external problems. Do you not believe that the Lord will? In ours as well. He has kept every one of his promises, and he will continue to keep his promises. But you see, it was God's people who had begun to believe lies. To believe the lies that the desiring the flesh is greater than obeying God and treasuring him. 
They were unfaithful to him. They neglected his word. They brought shame and guilt into the community. And in a sense, this is a list of traitors who had betrayed God. But that's not what we see in Ezra. We see how God's people are to respond to their failures, to confess and to repent and to believe the word of God. So that as the word of God teaches us that God will show mercy and grace and forgiveness. We see in Ezra a God who is good. A God who is kind and gracious. That he is merciful despite their sin and failures. So that tells me that even though there is this greatest enemy is me, that there still always is hope. There's always hope. Do not let anyone ever tell you that there's never any hope. I've seen the worst of sinners become Christians. I've seen the worst legalists, who were some of the worst sinners, become Christians and believe the gospel and trust in Christ. And we know this, that in Christ, that God has not only overcome our external opposition, but he has also overcome our internal opposition. Our internal opposition, our greatest threat of what? The slavery to sin. To continually submit ourselves to that yoke of slavery. Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Meaning the scriptures, the gospel, the Bible. You believed it and you become obedient. Your hearts have been transformed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. If you are in Christ, your greatest threat is once what you were slaves to, sin. But no more. Listen to this. Earlier in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So too that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now if we have died, excuse me, verse 7, for, we, for one who has died has been set free from sin, verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christians, there still is a very real great threat. There still is a great threat of the sin nature that is in us. But as Christ tells us, or we see in Romans chapter 6, from the words of God himself, that that threat has been disarmed by Christ himself. 
Because we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we have died of ourselves, and we are now alive in Christ. If you are not a Christian, then you are still enslaved to sin. Sin is your master and will continue to be your master even in self-righteousness or in licensure. In Christ we have come and died to self, died to sin, and are now alive in God, in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this morning we encounter a very scandalous list. Can you imagine someone doing that today? It's kind of laughable, isn't it? Because the scandal today, maybe laughing but also sad, because the scandal today would not be the shameful sinner, but the scandal would be that someone would have the audacity to compile such a list. And yet, we all know that we are guilty. Guilty of intermarrying ourselves with sin of the world in one way or another. We are all guilty. Back to Colossians 3, we read there from last week, and I want to read a little bit again from this week, or to this week. Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming, verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Yes, the Apostle Paul is speaking directly to the church members in Colossae, but the word of God is reminding each and every one of us that we all once walked in sin, and we are all guilty. Our names may not be written in this, written in this list, but we are all written on a list. And we are all on a list of guilt, deserving completely the wrath of God. And we know that the accuser comes, and he accuses us, and he reminds you of your guilt, and tells you how guilty you are, and he holds this list up and says, there you are, see, you proved it again, here you are. And the accuser is right. We are guilty before our holy God. All of our names are on that list. But Ephesians 1, 7, like many others, remind us, in him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our hope of forgiveness of our sins is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is according to his riches and his grace. I may be on that list, you may be on that list, but listen to me this morning. But thanks be to God. He has written my name on another list purchased once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, are you on that list? 
You may stand accused before, before the world and before the Lord, but are you relying on the righteousness of Christ? Now, all of us, our names should be on this list. God in his mercy has put us on a list that is far greater. A list of forgiven in Christ. This morning, as Christians, we come together humbly. We come humbly because we know that we are guilty. And yet God, by his grace, has justified us once and for all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, O oh God, that we would be encouraged by its, the truths of the things that we have spoken of. Lord, we know that we are guilty of our sin. And yet, we thank you for the word of God that shares with us and shows us the truth that Christ is our Redeemer. That he has purchased us and that we are now clothed with his righteousness, so no matter what accusation comes our way, no matter what condemnation that comes our way, if we are not condemned by the sovereign God, creator of the universe, who has adopted us into his family, then who could stand and accuse us? So we stand humbly and courageously in Christ. Lord, would you continue to teach us what it means to repent of our sin, to confess our sin, to always walk humbly before our Lord. Let our hearts always be malleable to the scriptures and to the Holy Spirit, teaching us to obey our Lord and our Savior. We thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. Would you be glorified in all things? In Christ's name, amen.